Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Dr. M. Elizabeth Thorpe, an associate professor at SUNY Brockport. I was like, all right, I'm looking at this time period and what we were saying about who we are as opposed to like one event or a theory or something like that. So it was about what we were saying about who we were at this moment. You'll hear more from Dr. Thorpe in a bit. But first, I want to amplify a new opportunity from the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Last week, we launched the Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellowship Program. The Big Rhetorical Podcast seeks a graduate student to serve as the Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellow for the 2021-2022 academic year. The Fellow will assist in various aspects of running a podcast. Specifically, the Fellow will help with two social media initiatives with the goal of growing TBR podcast reach and listenership. The Fellow will also help with production, including booking and interviewing for their own episode during Season 6. This is a paid opportunity. Payment is $100. Applications should come from graduate students with research interests in rhetoric, digital publishing, technical communication, and or social media. We estimate this will be three to four hours of work. Payment is through our nonprofit organization. This fellowship will give the fellow experience working with a leading academic podcast, connecting with scholars in rhetoric, writing studies, and adjacent areas, and gaining valuable experience working and producing in the field. To apply, please send a CV and an email of interest to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com with the subject line TBR Podcast Fellow Application. Applications are due on November 15th, 2021. Please direct all questions and inquiries to the Big Rhetorical Podcast. For additional information on the podcast, visit www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. M. Elizabeth Thorpe was raised in various West Texas towns. As a child of an oil-filled roughneck and a public school teacher, she and her family followed the booms and busts of the oil industry throughout West Texas until settling in the Permian Basin when she was a teenager. Then, she went to Baylor University, where she majored in English. She took two years off, then got her M.A. in English from Texas A&M University. Afterward, she received her Ph.D. in Rhetoric and Public Affairs from the Communication Department at Texas A&M. After school, she moved to the Rochester, New York area for a visiting assistant professor job and within two years had secured a tenure-track position at SUNY Brockport. 
She is now an associate professor focusing on constitutive rhetoric, legal rhetoric, and free speech. She teaches classes in protest, political rhetoric, propaganda, and the First Amendment. And she lives in Brockport with her amazing husband and their astounding 11-year-old daughter. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. M. Elizabeth Thorpe. Tell me, who are you? What's your name, your title, your institution, your role there? What do you do? My name is Martha Elizabeth Thorpe. I go by Elizabeth Thorpe. I publish under M. Elizabeth Thorpe, if you're ever looking for me. Um, I went to Texas A&M for my MA and my PhD. I am at SUNY Brockport right now. I am an associate professor there. I teach the rhetoric classes or some of the rhetoric classes there. I'm in the communication department. So I like to joke how if it's salacious at all, they give it to me. So I have like the free speech classes and the political rhetoric classes and the propaganda, the protest classes. Like if it's controversial, it's mine. I'm teaching the revolution. Um, I like all I need is a printing press and I'm ready to go. Um, I live in Brockport, New York with my husband and my daughter and our cat. And I don't, what else do you need to know about me? That's, that's a lot. That's the the basics. That's the elevator spiel. I love it. Yeah. Let's backtrack a little bit. All right. Okay. Earlier we were talking and you mentioned 31 years in Texas. So yes, you were born there. I was, I am a Texan native. So, um, I was born in a little town called Breckenridge, Texas, which nobody has ever heard of. But after that, we moved all around West Texas. Uh, we moved many, many times when I was young. My dad was in the, uh, he was an oil hand, um, kind of a, blue collar sort of affair. Um, so we kind of went wherever the oil fields were booming and left wherever there were busts. And my mom was a public school teacher. So she was able to get a job wherever we went. And we just kind of followed the oil in West Texas for a good chunk of my life until we settled in the Permian Basin in Midland, Texas, when I was a teenager. Um, and I guess we were there throughout most of my junior high and high school years. But it was, uh, just to give you some indication of just how kind of transient we were, I was in high school before I went to the same school more than two years in a row. Whoa. What was that like? I can't, I can't relate at all. Yeah. uh, Well, most people can't like most people don't move around that much unless they're in the military. That's kind of a, yeah, that's not, that's not common. It was really, it was really hard. I mean, that's not, obviously that wouldn't be easy for anybody. But um, for me, 
I kind of, I kind of learned to solidify for myself kind of who I was and what I thought about things. Um, Cause when I was really young, I had this idea that I was like, well, if I don't figure out who I am and what I think about the world, somebody's going to tell me. And I didn't want that to happen. So I kind of became this really assertive, if not abrasive person, really young because we were moving around so much and there was so much change in the world. I decided I wanted to be my own person in the midst of all of that change. So I kind of settled into my identity early on not that I haven't changed and grown a lot like anybody does in the midst of all that but I decided I was going to be like who I was early on does that make sense I think it does I think it does what's interesting is that you have all of these little bits and pieces of yourself that you're like taking from different places right and kind of like putting together in well Midland I guess is kind of in high school you know um, did you graduate? Did you stay in Midland long enough to graduate? Yes, there? I graduated from Midland High School. Midland High School. I imagine it's pretty big. Uh, <laughs> um, Actually, Midland High School is pretty big. Um, yeah. My graduating class was about 500. Yeah. Um, and that was with like a 50% dropout rate. So goodness gracious. That's a ton of folks. So did you stay in Midland just for your undergraduate? I went to Baylor University for my undergraduate, which is in Waco, Texas. So I've heard uh, of Baylor, but I don't know a lot about it. Could you tell me what's <laughs> like the undergrad experience there for you? So, the thing I know about Baylor is it's a Baptist university. I was going to say, what you need to know about <laughs> Baylor is it's like, I think it's the largest Baptist institution in the world or something like that's one of their claims yeah. to fame or something like that. Um, so it is a very religious, very conservative school. Um, so there was a lot of growth and tension that happened while I was there. Um, and I went to Baylor thinking I'm a good Southern Baptist and I'm gonna be a good Southern Baptist and live my good Southern Baptist life. And what I learned at Baylor was I was not a good Southern Baptist. Um, (laughs) What made you ungood? What made you not good? I'm like, I think this is something that people around me knew. I just hadn't put all the pieces together, but like, okay. So when people ask me like, what happened to you? How did you fall so far away from your family and your upbringing. Like I tell them there are certain things that my parents did that were like tragic mistakes on their behalf. And one of them was they told me to read the Bible and take it seriously. And I did. And I got to Baylor and I was like, well, the early church was living in common with common property and like sharing everything they had. And like, they were basically communists and Jesus was like handing out free healthcare and hanging out with the marginalized. And like, I was like moving farther and farther and farther left. The more I learned about the world 
and my faith and everything. And Baylor was like, no, 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 no. That's not what we meant. And I'm like, "Mm, but was it? So there was some growth that happened while I was at Baylor that was not perhaps what my family and Baylor intended. (laughs) I grew up in a Southern Baptist household. And if you didn't, like, you just don't understand how accurate the cliches and the jokes are, you know? (laughs) Oh, it's so true. Oh, my gosh. Like, my family was the classic, like, no drinking, no swearing. They allowed dancing, but only to a point, right? But, like, my parents... They still don't, like, they do not drink. And they are, like, they're the, they're the classic Southern Baptists that, like, people think, oh, that, that's just what you see on TV. No, it's not what you see on TV. (laughs) Like, like, I grew up that way. For me, you know, oh, go ahead, please. No, no, no. What were you going to say? For me. No, so. (laughs) (laughs) two professional podcasters talking all over each other yes (laughs) so it was just uh going to school and seeing that like not everybody lives that way and that there were multiple options to approach the world was eye-opening and the fact that i saw that even at an institution like baylor was yeah like obviously the world is different than what I thought it was. Do you feel like rebelling against your religious upbringing was one of the healthiest things you've ever done and like putting things in perspective or is it still something you struggle with? That may be a loaded question. No, that's okay. I don't mind. I don't know. So I don't know that I like the word rebelling because like I still... I still am a person of faith. I go to an Episcopal church now. Gotcha. Um, I still consider myself a very religious person. I have not given up on that. I've just sort of revised the way I see things. I love that. So I don't know that I... I definitely didn't grow up into the kind of faith that I was raised in, but I still, I like the philosophy and I like the basic tenets of the faith. I mean, help the poor. That's a good idea. right yeah be kind to each other that's a good idea like i don't i I, there's not a part of me that wants to give up on this because i think there are some good ideas there i just had to find a place where those good ideas i felt like were more were put into action a little bit better does that make sense 
It does. It does. Because it makes me think about this idea. Like, I love the word, the way that you use the word revise, right? You know, writing instructors talking about revision and revising the way that they, they see things. Right. And I think for me, it was about revising the way that I understood things like race. Right. I I grew up in rural Alabama. Absolutely. Things like sexuality. Right. Like, for me, that that those were the things I had to contend with with my faith. Like, like, how do I see these, and how is there tension within the people and the community that I'm in, and the people that are guiding and raising me, and then my own beliefs and opinions, right? Yeah, I absolutely understand that. That's um, my views on race and sexuality have. Like, I don't even know that I recognize the person that I was when I was 14 or 15. And that's okay. Because 14 or 15-year-old me just didn't know anything. And we learn. And that's all right. As long as we are willing to learn. So you're at Baylor. Did you decide to go directly to your master's degree from Baylor? No, I took two years off to be an artist and a bohemian. Um, And then I realized I couldn't maintain that forever. Sure. And then I went back to get my master's and I got my master's in English, actually. My MA is in English. uh, And... I thought I was going to be a medievalist. Oh, I think we all have that one semester. (laughs) Well, so here's, here's the story though. Um, When I was an undergrad, you know, a lot of people do work study when they're an undergrad. I did work study, but my job when I was an undergrad during work study was transcribing the Mort de Art from middle English into modern day character. Cool. Uh, Yeah. So, like, a lot of people work at the library. I was carrying around like this gigantic tome of Middle English script. Like, seriously, it was gigantic. It was so much bigger than like annotated Shakespeare. It was huge. People would see me and they'd be like, What class are you taking? Because I am not here for that. Um, And I worked in the computer lab in the basement of the English building and all the grad students knew me because I was the only person who was there near as much as they were. Uh, And I like knew more about King Arthur and Sir Gowan and the Green Knight than any 20, 21 year old should. And I just got really into it. So when I went to get my master's degree, I was like, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and do like middle English and Chaucer and all that, you know, medieval stuff. But as I went through my master's degree, I, there was a succession of things that happened, but basically I decided I didn't want to do English anymore and I got interested in what they were doing in the communication department. And I ended up in rhetoric and public affairs in the communication department for my PhD. I just kind of switched programs. Very cool. Very cool. And so what did you write your uh, dissertation about? 
My dissertation was uh, different than a lot of dissertations. What I did was I was interested in um, constitutive rhetoric. Um, and I, uh, oh, good question. Um, so the way I describe constitutive rhetoric is it's kind of like the way we make up who we are as we go along. So like I, um, I looked at American, um, but my goal wasn't to define American because I feel like that's basically impossible. But what I was interested in is how we go about defining American, not like what is American, but what are the things we do to kind of make that up as we go through the process. And what I looked at was one year. I looked at the year 1954 because for whatever reason, that was this like watershed moment in history. And I looked at certain things that happened in 1954 and how those particular rhetorical moments were specifically looking to define what it means to be American and how they address that issue. So I looked at, uh, the McCarthy have you no know, sense of decency moment. I looked at Brown v. Board of Education. I looked at adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. And I looked at the publication of Playboy because all of these things happened in 1954. And I thought all of those said something specific about kind of who we were as a nation. Mm. So I was like, all right, I'm looking at this time period and what we were saying about who we are as opposed to like one event or a theory or something like that. So it was about what we were saying about who we were at this moment. So it makes sense to me why you focused on McCarthy, right? That's yeah. a huge political situation. Yeah. It makes sense to me why you focus on Brown v. Board of Education because you're in an educational setting mm -hmm. and it makes sense to me knowing you a bit through this interview and you know around why you would focus on under god being ad added to yeah. the pledge of allegiance where does playboy playboy come in? right right where yeah. does that come in and what were your ultimate conclusions about american in 1954 yeah so uh, Playboy was actually uh, a really fun chapter to write. Um, and what I did was I read not just like Playboy, but I also read Hugh Hefner's philosophy on Playboy and things like oh, that. Okay. Um, so I got into like, what is Playboy about? And if you really get into the reads playboy is very much about consumption and this idea that there is an ideal american man and there is an ideal american girl and it's always girl not woman right and hugh hefner had this idea that the ideal american man he, he talked about the great indoors as opposed to the great outdoors and there was this ideal American man who was like hip and suave and bought the coolest toys. And he like was very much about 
speaking to this ideal American man. And for him, it was about consuming the right things. And consuming the right things also meant, in some ways, consuming the right women. But for him, it was about creating this ideal person. Hmm. So I wrote about how Hefner himself talked about Playboy was in some ways a philosophical guide to being the right kind of American. And the right kind of American was a man who consumes certain things. I'm thinking of like white picket fences and driveways and GI Bill built suburbs, right? <laughs> but for Hefner, it was more like a guy in a Manhattan apartment. Right. And like martini in hand, expensive stereo, tacky carpet, like tacky shag carpet, you know, like yeah. the hippest in the suavest. Like for him, it was about consuming what is trendy what is expensive like it was this ideal endorsement this like and it was this guide to be like and if you look at hef's lifestyle you can kind of see how that plays out but playboy was supposed to be this not just a nudie mag and that's why if you think about it like everybody says Oh, I only get it for the articles, right? right but the yeah. articles were supposed to be an important part of it. They were supposed to be a guide to this masculine. And in his version of masculine, it was this, I guess we would call it metrosexual kind of guy these days. Kind of like, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that very much played into what we were saying about what it means to be an American in the fifties and Hefner was creating this kind of new version of masculinity that would kind of propel us into the sixties and seventies as well. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating, Elizabeth, because like when I think of like this American ideal, right. This mm -hmm. constitutive rhetorical American, I'm like, I'm immediately drawn to like, based on my own experiences like willie loman or something like yeah. that right and what you're describing is is like playboy and half taking willie loman and just like throwing you know some new clothes on him and putting him in a high rise right this is yeah. some fascinating stuff i don't know a lot about so sorry thanks for indulging me a little bit yeah no problem more after this would you like to join charles in the big rhetorical podcast the podcast is booking for next season now the Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. 
If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. So you're in Brockport, New York. Yes. I don't know where that's at. Where's Brockport, It's right outside of Rochester. Okay. So on the west side of the state. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Um, how are you? What are you? How are you enjoying uh, SUNY Brockport? When did you get there? And what are you teaching? I got here in 2010. Oh, you've been there a minute then. Yes. I've been here for a little while. <laughs> that's awesome. When did you decide to start Chironicast? So I started Chironicast in, I guess it's been a year now. Yeah, it's been right at a year. It was a year in April, I believe. Um, and the story of Chironicast is amusing. Um, will you indulge me? Can I share the story of Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So... Uh, my husband and my friends always used to tell me I should have a YouTube channel. Um, but it was always like tongue in cheek. Cause they were like, oh my gosh, you should just get drunk and talk about rhetoric on YouTube. Um, and I was like, I don't know that that would be good for my career. And they were like, oh my gosh, you should just get a YouTube channel and have some wine and have your friends on and just everybody it would be because they wanted it to be like drunk history only rhetoric like that was they they thought this was gonna like idea. yeah why that, am that i this, interviewing people on an interview yeah. style podcast <laughs> right that was that was what they wanted drunk history only with rhetoric and i was like i'm not sure that that's gonna be good for me when i go up for tenure or full or whatever like i don't i don't know that that's gonna have me make my mark as a scholar and this conversation had been going on for forever um and like this came up over and over again kind of in a joking manner and then one day somebody was like okay well if you're not going to do that why don't you do something current like have a podcast and I was like I don't know about that and my husband was like no really you should get a podcast and I was like, who wants to listen to a podcast about rhetoric? And he was like, I bet a lot of people do. And he's the one who's like, I'm going to find podcasts on rhetoric and show you that people are doing this. And lo and behold, there were podcasts on rhetoric. And he was like, you could have a podcast on rhetoric. And I was like, could I have a podcast on rhetoric? He was like, yeah, you totally should. He was like, I'll help you. And I was like, I could do that. So it was largely like, my husband's idea but he was like you should have a podcast on rhetoric i was like okay but it's not going to be like drunk rhetoric he was like no 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 we'll make it like for real and i was like yeah okay i could do that so it started as a drunk history idea and then evolved into a no let's actually do a podcast on rhetoric and i was like we could talk about current events and we could talk about he's like yeah you should actually do this so my husband helped me with the tech side of stuff. And uh, I started writing and we put it all together. And that's how Chironicast was born. It evolved out of a joke 
that was going to be like just drunkenly talking about rhetoric into something that was like, no, let's actually do this. And has gotten some traction. That's awesome. So what type of things do you cover on Karate Cast? Some of your topics, um, themes, subjects? Yeah. So my goal on Karate Cast, and if you've ever listened, I say this a lot, um, is to take the ideas that we talk about in rhetorical studies and to show that they are applicable in the proverbial real world. And I'm putting that in quotation marks with my fingers. Um, because I don't think rhetoric is a valuable field of study unless it's something that is helpful in understanding the world that we live in. Mm. Um, Cause I don't think navel gazing is a particularly useful activity. I think things need to be, and that's not saying I'm all about, oh, we're only going to teach skills-based classes. No, that's not what I mean. I just think that if we're going to teach these kind of effect ideas, we need to be able to show that they are helpful in understanding the world that we live in. Um, so I talk a lot about current events. I do talk about some theoretical ideas, but I show, I try to show that the theoretical ideas are helpful in understanding the world that we live in. So I'm trying to show how these things are applied. Some days are more current events oriented. Some days are more rhetorical theory oriented. Um, it sort of depends on what's going on in the news that I feel like needs to be addressed. I try to be as current as possible. But the goal is to show that rhetoric is a relevant field. So what topics have you covered on recent episodes? So the last episode, for example, was about George W. Bush's um, 9-11 memorial speech that he gave mm. about flight 93. So weird. I just watched yeah. a video of George Bush throw out the W Bush, throw out the first pitch at a Yankees game after 9-11 yeah. like, today for some reason. It's weird you're bringing this up. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so he gave the flight 93 memorial speech on September 11th this year. And what I talked about was some of the, or one of the, focused on one of the rhetorical um, techniques that he used in his speech, um, stylistic techniques that he used. And I talked mm -hmm. about juxtaposition and how juxtaposition was something he used a lot in his speech to make it more effective. And I talked about how he used it well, like it was a really good speech. And one of the reasons it was a really good speech was because of his really profound use of juxtaposition throughout. But then I expanded that to talk about the problem with juxtaposition is that it can be used to cover up any number of sins. Um, and I talked about how he's juxtaposing two ideas, but like he's talking about the terror of 9-11 versus the 
um, heroism of the people post 9-11 who came to came together as a nation or something like that. And that's a lovely sentiment, but did we really come together? Is that a valid juxtaposition or is it just a poetic device? And then I said, and this is interesting because George W. Bush has been kind of rehabilitated in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. So that in and of itself is an interesting juxtaposition because you've got George W. Bush of September 11th, 2001 and the years beyond that and 2021. So that's a juxtaposition in and of itself that has to be taken into consideration when you think about this speech because George W. Bush of 2001 is one character Mm -hmm. George W. Bush in the Trump years is an entirely different character and that's a juxtaposition that is also being used to cover up any number of sins so I was talking about how rhetorical devices can help us understand the world that we live in but we also need to understand how they do that George W. Bush is absolutely an interesting figure rhetorical figure right for absolutely like i cannot get over this reclamation project right Uh, 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 that's what it is you know never has sharing a mint with michelle obama done more for one person's right or a person's persona yeah he's gone from war criminal to just kind old man who paints paintings is that fair? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think it is. What and I happened? think some of that, I think some of that is because, um, you know, George W. Bush in the early 2000s, he was trying to brand himself as the compassionate conservative and trying to spin this yarn that conservatives weren't the bad guys, but at the same time, he was trying to give the operation of government over to the churches and he was standing against LGBTQIA rights. And that was the disaster that was Katrina and that like the whole rigmarole, right? Like not to mention war crimes, like that's a whole other issue in and of itself. And all that is terrible. But then you look at George W. Bush through the eyes of the Trump years, and it's really easy to think, oh, he wasn't that bad because Trump was such a disaster. Like Trump said all the quiet parts out loud. Whereas the Bush years was just kind of a, well, we're working to be compassionate. Trump was like, no, I'm not. I'm trying to marginalize you. Yeah. So Bush doesn't seem that bad when looking at Trump. And that's not fair. You think Trump gets the same treatment 15, 20 years down the road? I don't, I don't think so. What do you think? Project a little bit. What are we going to, what are we going to think about Trump? Cause I know you cover him a, a bit in your podcast. I do. Um, It is hard for me to imagine a world in which Trump gets rehabilitated. 
if for no other reason than Trump has changed the narrative so much. Um, the Trump years have completely redirected what it means to be a conservative. And that's that's going to be something that we're going to have to reckon with for a long time. So I don't know that it's going to be easy for us to be like, oh, Trump wasn't that bad when we're going to be dealing with the fact that Trumpism, it's like a, a new politics. Yeah. And we're going to be dealing with that for years to come. Yeah. If the world doesn't burn down by 2050, I suppose we'll <laughs> right. still be dealing with Trumpism in 2050. Yeah, right. If climate change doesn't get us all. <laughs> Do you have a favorite episode of Karate Cast? Um, I've got a few that I'm really proud of. White.edu was one that I was really proud of. Wow. And um, because it was a no-holds-barred episode what's that mean um i was dealing with whiteness in education and Mm -hmm. how education is like enmeshed in whiteness and i didn't pull any punches like i was very open about the fact that education is institutionalized whiteness and I was, I don't want to say I was proud of the outcome because that's like, it's kind of gross to be like proud of that. But I was, I didn't hold back the way that it was tempting to do so when you're dealing with such a hot button issue. The same with when I dealt with um, law and order. Um I talked about Trump and Nixon and law and order. I talked about how law and order is basically code word for oppressed black people. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was pleased with the way that episode came out. Did that come out last summer? Yes. What's your husband do? My husband does some web design, but um, he also does a lot of focus as a stay at home dad. Um, he's very supportive of our family. Um, he does some web support for some of the local churches in the area. Um, and some kind of consulting for websites here and there, but he does a lot of at home support for the family. And co-produces Chiroticast. He does. He's my tech guy. <laughs> Anytime I refer to my tech guy, it's my husband. We're teaching online yeah. or in person this semester. Are you online or in person? I am in person. Oh, goodness. Um, for all three classes. How has it been so far? Well, three or four or five weeks in, I guess. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been an adventure. I um I made it through all of I think one or two days of class before I got an email from somebody saying, "Well, I've tested positive, so I'm going to be missing the next 10 days of class." And it's just been kind of a steady stream of people saying, 
I'm going to be gone for the next 10 days. And that's, that's tough to deal with. I mean, the emotional toll that takes and, you know, it's, it's a little scary. Yeah. Um, my child is unvaccinated. So, you know, walking into a room and knowing there are positive people in there, it's a little frightening. And then just dealing with the logistics of teaching these classes where people are in or out, in and out, I should say, it's challenging. What's brought, what's SUNY Brockport asking you to do? SUNY Brockport, I will say this about SUNY Brockport. SUNY Brockport is taking this seriously and is taking the health of their students and their professors very seriously. That's great. I know a lot of people are very frustrated with their schools because no mask mandate or no testing. But SUNY Brockport, if anything, they're like overkill. Mm. Um, like to the point that even if you're vaccinated, you have to go in for testing once a month. Like they are, they are serious about this. So I feel like, you know, we all have complaints about our employers, but the way they're handling COVID is not one of my complaints. I have been back four, five weeks now and gosh, it was like, 16 months of not being there right where is it the same for you I guess yep it's it's a struggle it's been a struggle only maybe well first thing is I have exactly 100 students so it was very disheartening after the like the third week to it's very easy to keep up with the statistics when 16 percent of the students in my classes right so 16 out of 100 had been in some type of COVID protocol. Um, oh my gosh. Like I was in a meeting, you know what, this, this is just going off the rails listeners, but I was in a meeting, <laughs> <laughs> I was in a meeting last week and I, I believe the person is tenured said that they're doing 200% more work because we've come back to face to face. And I thought, uh, us NTTs and adjuncts must be doing 400% of the work then. And since that occurred to me, that's how I felt. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, and there's so much, like we're all doing crazy amounts of work. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. It's like, not a contest. It's just, like yeah, we're all doing crazy amounts of is work. What it is. And the, emotional toll that ta- that all right. of this takes like the mental labor the emotional labor and then like thinking about doing stuff like publishing right now or doing extra service or all of those things that you're expected to do it's just overwhelming and I honestly don't know how people who are adjuncts are doing it right now. Like I have so much respect for adjuncts right now because I just, I just can't even imagine. 
We have to pour one out for the adjuncts today. Yeah. For sure. And every day. Where can listeners find KarateCast online? Um, well, it's KarateCast.com. That's K-A-I-R-O-T-I-C-A-S-T. But it is also pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. You can find it at Amazon, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. It's, you can find it. What are you doing this afternoon? This afternoon, um, well, my daughter is at writing club at the library. Um, That's like the coolest thing I've ever heard. Writing <laughs> club at the library. That's awesome. Yeah. So she is probably going to head to that in 10 or 15 minutes. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to make it to that with her. If not, I'm going to stick around and finish up some household stuff and get the oven going for dinner before they get back. Just take care of, you know, mom stuff, but yeah. Um, my daughter is really involved with the local library and a bunch of their club stuff. She does like book club and writing club and she's in their middle school age club stuff and like helps with young she helps run the younger kids stuff she's super involved there that is awesome awesome those were my favorite kids when I was a public librarian in another life Elizabeth (laughs) thanks for stopping by and chatting with me it has been it has been a pleasure I hope you enjoyed my conversation with M. Elizabeth Thorpe. I'm glad to call her a friend and a fellow podcaster. Make sure to check out new episodes of her podcast, Chiroticast. You can also check out her episodes from the 2020 and 2021 TBR Podcast Carnivals. Chiroticast is an OG member of the carnival, and we hope they are back for our third installment next year. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Season 5 is well underway. Make sure you are tuning in. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people. And we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and Stepa Helix.